So the title of my talk tonight is Windows on the World, Self-View and the Four Noble Truths. So we're often told as we read spiritual books and listen to Dhamma talks that we should let go of self, which is a belief in and a sense of a separate, independent I. An I who is, or at least wants to be, in control of body and mind and most of the things that it comes in contact with. We're told that having seen through and let go of self is a sign of spiritual progress and spiritual maturity. In the Theravada Buddhist model of spiritual development, letting go of self is a hallmark of two of the stages of awakening. At the first stage, stream entry, we let go of self-view, Sakaya Ditti in the Pali. It may also be translated as personality view, or identity view. This is the deeply seated belief that I am at least relatively independent, separate, and that I continue from birth to death, and perhaps maybe even beyond. At the last stage of awakening, arahantship, we're said to let go of all sense of a separate and distinct self. It's said that with arahantship, there's no longer a tendency to respond to anything that is encountered from a position of self, from a position of I. So I assume that, in that case, there's just experiencing moment after moment after moment. But in the understanding of Theravada Buddhism, what does self mean in terms of our own individual lives? And how does one let go of it? beginning with self-view. To help us understand this, I want to talk in terms of windows. Suppose you were standing in front of a wall that had a window in it. If you were to look out the window, you would see many things. But when you look out through a window, your view is also framed. It's framed by the wall that surrounds the window. It's framed by the location of the window in the wall. High, low, left, right. It's framed by the size of the window. So your view is always limited in some way. Some windows may allow us to look out at grass, flowers, trees. 
we might be able to see birds and squirrels coming and going. Other windows might look out on a busy road or highway. We might see cars and trucks rushing by, stuck in traffic, or having an accident. Depending on what we're wanting to know, one window may be more useful than another. So the question is, what is the most useful window if we're trying to live a life of generosity, kindness, and goodwill? A life of ease and wisdom. A life of awakening. Most of us, most of the time, view our world of experiences through the window of self, the window of I, me, and mine. Sometimes when we're looking at our experiences through the window of self, our attention may be drawn to bodily experiences. We may notice sensations of hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness, heaviness or lightness, heat or cold, cohesion or flowing, pushing, pressure, tightness, movement, or a sense of supporting, upholding. Or, as Shiloh described this morning, we may notice more complex bodily experiences at any of the sense doors. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, or touch. We may notice experiences of seeing forms, colors, and patterns, of hearing sounds, of smelling odors, of tasting flavors combined with sensations, perhaps of hardness, roughness, heaviness, heat, or fluidity. Experiences of touch with pressure and movement and hardness and roughness and heat. Whatever the bodily experience, when we're viewing through the window of self, we typically think of these experiences in terms of I or me. I am having this experience. My body is feeling this way. Or there may simply be an attitude of, I am this sensation. When there are pleasant experiences, painful or unpleasant experiences, or neither painful nor pleasant ones, we typically think, I like that, or I don't like that, I want that, or I don't want that, I am so bored by that. Or perhaps we think or have the attitude, I am this feeling of pleasantness, I am that pain, but I wish I weren't, and so on. The same is true with mind states. 
such as happiness or sadness, joy or anger, wanting or revulsion, confusion or clarity. We're even more likely to regard mind states and emotions as I am. I am happy. I am so sad. And a favorite of meditators, I am so clear and so spacious. I am. Thoughts mostly have to do with I, me, and mine. We have these little fragments, these little bubbles of thought that rise into consciousness just a little bit. But then they get elaborated on when we see them through the window of self. Elaborated to the point where we have these often huge stories about ourselves and about others. I'm sure all of you have observed this at one point or another. Associated with viewing our experiences as aspects of I or me, we develop concepts, ideas about who I am. We develop images of me. We develop identities based on these images, concepts, and ideas. Identities such as I am a man, or I am a woman, or I am a meditator. We're also influenced by the interactions that we have with other people and with societal institutions, the ways that they treat us and the messages that they send us about ourselves may be internalized, that's who I am, or reacted against, no, I'm not that. Either way, we tend to take these as part of our identity, as part of who we think and feel that we are. And we even compare these concepts, ideas, and images with concepts images, and identities of other people, of other eyes and me's, such as, I am a man, and men are like this, but he's not like this, so he's not really a, he's not a real man. Or, those men are really strong guys, but I'm not like them. Does that mean I'm not a strong guy? Or, she sits still like a rock. She must have a really still mind, too. I can't sit still at all. And my mind is all over the place. She must be a really good meditator, but boy, I'm not. 
Sound familiar, huh? Viewing our experiences in these ways is so automatic that we often don't think about it. Maybe we can't even comprehend that there might be another way of viewing things. Because of this, we may not see how it leads to a kind of solidification, a congealing around our experiences so that they and we seem solid and enduring. We may not see the ways that this window of self, this window of identification with experiences, often leads to misery for ourselves and others. We may not see how it justifies acting in greedy or hateful ways. We may not see how it can reinforce painful judgments about others or about ourselves. We may not see how it leads harm to ourselves and others. The Venerable Sariputta, one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, once said, Just as the footprint of any living being that walks can be placed within an elephant's footprint, so the elephant's footprint is declared chief of them because of its great size. So too, all wholesome states can be included in the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths, then, offer us a very large and very wholesome window for viewing our experiences. The Four Noble Truths is not simply a doctrine to believe in or not believe in. It's a tool to help us relate to our experiences in a way that leads to an ability to live with balance and steadiness and a deep quality of peace and happiness. Or, as Shaila said last night, equanimity. When we use the Four Noble Truths as a window into life's experiences, we drop, at least for those moments, viewing things through the window of self, through the window of identification. So if we pay close attention to the first noble truth, we find that dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, stress, and suffering, is associated with self-view. One of the Buddhist descriptions of the first noble truth is, now this is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Illness is dukkha. Death is dukkha. 
Union with what is displeasing is dukkha. Separation from what is pleasing is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are dukkha. So how do we work with the truth and the reality of dukkha? I want to mention a few things that I find helpful. First, of course, dukkha needs to be met with mindfulness, kindness, and goodwill. Otherwise, we can quickly fall back into self-view, identification, and judgment. And of course, when we do that, we bring more dukkha into the world. But as we meet experiences with mindfulness, we can begin to see them as events rather than as who or what we are. We can see and know this is simply a sensation, a feeling, a perception, an intention, a thought, a moment of consciousness, a moment of knowing. And out of this, we see that these events are not only dukkha, not only unsatisfactory, but we also see that they are impermanent, that they arise and pass as conditions change, that these experiences are empty of any enduring qualities. When we view experiences as events, rather than as who we are. It makes it easier to be with things that are difficult, the things that are unpleasant. We can be with them without reacting for or against. It really shifts our relationship to life. And as you all know, this is one of the powers of mindfulness. So when I recognize that there is an experience of dukkha, I find that it can be really useful beyond meeting it with mindfulness and kindness and goodwill to take the dukkha as a sign. It's a Pay careful attention to this sign, not a avoid this at all costs sign. Pay attention to this. It's a little reminder that this is something to investigate, to be curious about. What is going on with this experience of dukkha? Not to try to intellectually analyze it and figure it out, but to just tune in 
to what's going on in the mind and the body that's contributing to this experience of dukkha. Curiosity allows us to reinforce the frame of this window of the Four Noble Truths. Curiosity helps us to have the intention to look at the dukkha, to look at it in a way that doesn't deny that we're having this experience, but also doesn't personalize it. One of my favorite ways of responding when it seems appropriate and true to kind of where I am in relationship to the dukkha is to hold it with the expression ah this suffering, frustration, anger, grief, fading joy, whatever it is Ah, this. This is part of what it is to be a human being on this earth. We acknowledge what we're experiencing, but we hold it in a spacious way. So then we have the second noble truth. There is an origin of dukkha, which is tanha, craving, thirst, or hunger for something. The sutta description is, now this is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha. It is this craving which leads to renewed existence accompanied by delight and lust, seeking delight here and there, that is, craving for sensual pleasures, craving for existence, craving for extermination. So getting caught in craving, thirst, hunger, grasping after something, identifying with something, leads to experiences that are unsatisfactory, stressful, maybe even suffering. It's about viewing our experiences through the window of self. The second noble truth is about taking a position of self in relation to whatever we are experiencing in a particular moment. It's about wanting life to be other than the way that it is. I spoke about this yesterday morning with a simple example of a bodily sensation that has a painful feeling associated with it. If we respond to this experience with a craving for a pleasant feeling, then we often struggle with a painful feeling, trying to avoid it. And this usually ends up intensifying and prolonging the experience of the painful feeling. 
Shaila spoke eloquently the other night about how we can crave for pleasant experiences at any of the sense doors. When we do, it leads to a quality of agitation until we get what we crave. And then after a brief bit of pleasantness and satisfaction, it fades away, which may be painful or at least neutral. And then we get something else. We try something else to get more pleasantness. And so the agitation continues again and again and again. So how do we work with craving? How do we work with dukkha without reinforcing the belief in and sense of self? If we think of the Four Noble Truths as a very large window with a number of smaller pains within it, then one of those pains would be the model of mind and body that we call the five aggregates subject to clinging. Materiality, feeling, perception, mental or volitional formations, such as intentions, and moments of consciousness, of knowing. We bring mindfulness, concentration, and the wisdom factor of investigation to these five categories of experience. This helps us to understand how we operate in this moment as psychophysical beings without a self and to understand how self-identity and self-referencing are constructed. This process of constructing a self can be understood in terms of two of the forms of craving mentioned in the sutta quote. Craving for existence and craving for extermination or non-existence. One of the forms that craving for existence takes involves our social needs. We may hunger to be acknowledged, to be affirmed, to feel connected to others, to feel useful. These are really deep conditioners that drive a lot of our activity. Craving these qualities, we may also be afraid that we may not get them. We may feel hurt or angry or depressed when we fail to get them in the way that we want. And then there's the hunger, the craving for non-existence. At its extreme, it can be a craving for suicide. But my understanding is a lot broader than that. 
I understand it simply as a craving, a hunger, to not be in this situation, to not have to deal with these circumstances, to not be seen in the way I'm being seen, or at least the way I feel I'm being seen. Working with craving arises naturally out of seeing clearly when dukkha is present. So when I've finally managed to recognize that dukkha is present in my life, some of what I found helpful is, once again, meeting it with mindfulness and metta, viewing it as an event, and then bringing curiosity to it, bringing an investigative approach. I often pose a question for myself. Theory tells me that when dukkha is present, there is tanha, craving or hunger, lying under it. So what is being craved if dukkha is present now. And then, just waiting to see if something is revealed. After recognizing what underlies the craving, asking, will this hunger, will this craving lead to wholesome results? or unwholesome results? And can I simply be open to the hunger without getting entangled with it? When we can bring mindfulness, metta, and investigation to our experiences of dukkha and craving, then we are on the path of practice to the ending of dukkha. That there is a path that we don't just have to stay stuck in dukkha is the fourth noble truth. All of here, us here are practicing on that path whether we think of what we're doing in those terms or not. And when we're able to meet our experiences in this way, we can get a taste, or maybe more, of the cessation of dukkha. In other words, we get a taste of the third noble truth. The sutta description is, now this is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving. The giving up and relinquishing of it. Freedom from it. Non-reliance on it. Non-reliance on dukkha. Non-reliance on craving. Be sure to notice when the mind and heart are free of dukkha.
Notice when you are experiencing the third noble truth. So rather than regarding the four noble truths as something to believe, see if you can make them a window, a window through which you approach each moment of experience, each moment of your life. And when you do remember to do this, notice what effect it has on your mind, your heart, your body. <laughs> 